0: And a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Jared Ayers. He and his family moved to Philadelphia in 2008 to plant Liberty Church Center City, and since then,
1: they've loved calling Philly home.
0: I give you Jared Ayers. Jared, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you, Scott.
0: Jared, you are the pastor of Liberty Center City in Philadelphia.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I pastor a church called Liberty Church uh, that has uh, two campuses. One of them is in uh, Center City, Philadelphia, in the Rittenhouse Square neighborhood. And one of them is in the Villanova uh, neighborhood on the main line uh, west of uh, Philly's downtown.
0: And that's like about a 30-minute distance or so, 25, 30 minutes.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's one of those uh it's one of those funny things that it's like 7 miles uh or a 15 minute train ride or during the week like a 50 minute car ride. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> so do you preach at both services?
1: I do. Yeah, so uh we stagger our service times and I just do the same sermon in both places. So.
0: And you have communion weekly though, right?
1: We do. Yeah, so I uh so I leave as one of our other ministers is uh, leading the Eucharist at our, our center city service or the first service we do and hop in a car and uh, head out to the main line. And I get there usually while everybody's confessing some sins. And then I just do the same sermon again. And then we celebrate communion there too.
0: So liturgically, you sort of f- finish, you get like, you, you, you get like, you come in at the absolution. You leave during the communion at the one service and come in at the absolution at the other.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I so I that. get the whole service through the course of the morning, just not all in one place.
0: I love it. Well, let's take a look at these readings. Exodus 20, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The first reading for this week. I wonder how many people spend much time on this. We've got, it's basically, it's it, verses 1 through 4, 7 through 9, 12 through 20. We get the giving of the law. It's like, it, it, part of me is like asking the Bill Maher question. You're know, like, did we really need these? Like, don't kill each other. <laughs> don't steal. Like, you know what I mean? Are these really... You know, yeah. before this was everybody thinking, oh, shit, it's Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I mean, it seems yeah. like Moses yeah. murdering somebody knew he did something wrong, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, these are—although Roy Moore, we just had a guy win a Senate primary in Alabama who is famous for erecting this massive monument to the Ten Commandments. And
1: was he was really team. into the Ten Commandments. Very, yeah. very into it. So I guess at yeah. his church, they might—but what—I mean, how many times have yeah. you
0: preached on, on the Decalogue? Many times?
1: uh a few times i've done this passage in the lectionary and then our church has done a series w- working our way through the 10 commandments and i think you know what one of the things i'm always thinking about from the post that i preach at is that my the reality of of the the place where i do mission and ministry is uh is that it's a it's a fairly deeply uh, post christian kind of context which is to say uh there's you know the the sort of moral and uh intellectual furniture in you know in a culture's collective head that that gives them sort of basic christian assumptions is is not shared by the people who are walking in my church doors. And so, um, so I think the, the, like, why bother with the 10 commandments or do they have anything of substance to say to me is a real question that I I want to anticipate when I'm approaching this passage. I remember, uh, several years ago, I read a, uh, uh, I read a, a, a half tongue in cheek article called the new 10 commandments by the late Christopher Hitchens. It was in vanity fair. And, um, uh, and so he, uh, so he proposes his own, like, update of the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and here's some of, uh, here's some of his article. He says, uh, uh he says, it's difficult to take oneself with sufficient seriousness to begin any sentence with the words thou shalt not. But who cannot summon the confidence to say, do not condemn people on the basis of their ethnicity or color. Do not ever use people as private property. Do not imagine that you can escape judgment if you rob people with a false prospectus rather than with a knife. Turn off that cell phone. You have no idea how unimportant your call is to us. This is Christopher Hitchens talking, Scott, not me right now. FYI. Uh, and then he says, be willing to renounce any god or any religion if any holy commandments should contradict any of the above. In short, do not swallow your moral code in tablet form. Uh, I thought that was a great line like we the the kind of person that I am preaching this passage to does not like swallowing moral codes uh and at the same time, I think it raises the real question there's a, there's obviously in those sentiments deeply felt beliefs about what a flourishing life looks like and what a uh, and, and what a life that is small or wicked or selfish looks like, and uh, the average person that i 'm talking to has those things in them and and yet has has no uh, has no sort of framework that they 're built on at all um, and so so that 's sort of where I begin the conversation with uh with between this text and the people that are going to be that are going to be hearing it uh when when i 'm preaching this so
0: so there's this story, I think it was Gamaliel, one of the rabbis, some pagan soldiers said to him, you know, recite the whole Torah standing on one foot and mm-hmm. we'll convert. And he just yeah. goes on one foot and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor's Stuff. The rest is just commentary. And, mm-hmm. and Jesus seems to echo that. And and isn't, mm-hmm. isn't the, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, isn't the great Reformation insight that the law is powerless to give what it demands? Like it can yeah. tell you, don't do this. And maybe you'll even not do it because of fear or something like you can make a law against stealing, but you can't make a law against the avarice or entitlement that would let somebody think they can appropriate what is not their own.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, this is where I think uh, I think like Calvin's conception of the of the three uses of the law is is really helpful. And I, I, you know, I, I use this in my own preaching and teaching of kind of the ethical portions of scripture and as well as this passage in particular, there's, you know, there's the role that that the law has as a, as a curb in which, you know, the, uh, these words are, are basic injunctions about what is uh, what is life giving and what is life, uh, you know, life crushing um, about, you know, the way that people live together in a community. And these are meant to curb that Uh, there's a, um, there 's a writer that I like a lot named thomas cahill who uh, he 's done several different like history uh books and he did he did one on the uh on ancient israel and there 's a section where he talks about the ten Commandments while he uh, where he highlights the reality that these are uh, the ten commandments are they 're similar in uh in structure to uh, to any other kind of ancient Caesarean vassal Treaty set up between you know a master and and servants and such, uh, except for the fact that they have no justification whatsoever um, and they're really compact, like the commands six, seven, and eight are only two words long, uh, and they're like three syllables um the uh, and he he makes the point um, he says this he says they 've been received by billions as reasonable, necessary, even unalterable uh, because they 're written on human hearts and always have been. They were there in the inner core of the human person and the deep silence each of us carries within they needed only to be spoken aloud um, and so I think that there's a there's a way in which they they function as a as a curb for you know, what, uh, what destroys life? What destroys flourishing? You know, there's also, uh, the function they have as a, as a mirror. You know, they, they show a person their own imperfections. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is an unfashionable way to approach the Ten Commandments, uh, for a lot of people in the 21st century. Um, and yet it, it also, uh, it also is a reality that everybody in there, in their more honest moments admits, um, and uh, you know, Augustine in the fourth century he talks about, you know, uh, how the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements to get really tired and wearied in doing that, uh so that we're ready to know our need for grace. And so right, there's right, right. there's the way that the commandments function in that way. And then there's the and then there's the uh what Calvin calls the third use of the law, in which they're you know, they're essentially a, a roadmap for what a really human and flourishing life following Jesus looks like. Like I, you know, I always, whenever I'm preaching this passage, uh, point out the context in which they're given. Uh, God, uh, rescues helpless people, makes them his family, uh, and then says, uh, to people who have already been rescued, this is now how you live a free life. Uh, God, God is showing people this is what real liberation, real freedom looks like hammered out in a life together
0: yeah i think the third use of law works if it's descriptive i think once it's prescriptive this is where i think luther's a way better psychologist than calvin (laughs) just just because (laughs) anytime you say to somebody don't do it they want to do it you know it's just the nature of like uh, then we've got Philippians three right here. Paul is saying, if anyone's got reason to be confident in the flesh. He's yeah. got it. He's got all of the Jewish credentials. And yet mm-hmm. he seems to say that, that his relationship to the risen Jesus has changed something so that those things, which were credentials before have been completely relativized in relationship yeah. to belonging to, to Christ. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it just because this is uh you know, this is like Paul's resume in, in essence, he he talks about how he had, you know, sort of the impeccable, uh, Jewish credentials, uh, for his day. And, um, you know, uh, this is actually an insight that, uh, one of our other, one of our other ministers, uh, pointed out when they were preaching on this passage a little while ago at our church, like the, uh, you know if you if you look at paul's life as saul uh, when he's the period of his life where he's describing in the first half of the reading uh his his resume looks really good, and his life's trajectory for the society that he's a part of looks really good in the in the second half of the passage, his life looks miserable when you overlay that with, with you know what is he experiencing in the you know in the realities of his life as he talks about this, and yet uh he talks about the the reality that um, that thanks to the work of Jesus Christ, he, he, in essence has a, has a different resume, the, the boundary markers around, um, around, you know, keeping of, uh, keeping of ritual law and, you know, his identity as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, all those kinds of things. Um, he is, he has traded in and is you know, and he says, you know, he's, he's in his words quite happy with, uh, with, the with the deal that he gets, um. You know, even, even given his own suffering and such.
0: Yeah, I think of this the, this Christian psychologist, Frank Lake, who was, uh, wrote this, like, thousand-page book called Clinical Theology, which kind of kind of integrates psychiatry and theology. But mm-hmm. in the, he, like, knew Newton Leslie Newbigin in India. It's a really interesting guy. But in, in the intro, he says that, like, if we look at our humanity as a cupboard, right? that should contain good things in it. And then when we sort of existentially check ourselves out, we open ourselves up, we realize the cupboard is bare, right? But mm-hmm. he says, if we allow mm-hmm. the bottom to be knocked out of our humanity, it ruins it as a container, but then mm-hmm. makes it a channel for the life and energy of God himself. And that's what we're meant to be channels, not buckets. Uh, and so it's, 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 mm. so, so it's sort of like, oh
1: yeah, it's just great. It's, I mean, it's just, but that's such a power. Hey, that'll, that'll preach. I may steal that. Uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I
0: I send it to you. It's but but it seems like that's exactly what Paul's saying. Like I was looking at my as a bucket list life, like a but, but, but in the sense of containing things and the bottom got knocked out mm-hmm. and then it actually got better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, that is uh that is fascinating. I'm a loser, baby.
0: We got, we got enough there. Let's head to the most interesting text, I think, here because <laughs> you know this. This is, I think, the most colorful reading, probably this parable here in Matthew twenty-one, mm-hmm. of, of, where this landowner who has got this vineyard and puts a fence in it around it, builds a tower. Lots of details here. It's pretty interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And he he's got like the worst, of, like disloyal employee. You know, people that are 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 stewarding a thing. And this one, this parable, you know, it it it's actually it's one that seems to really piss off the religious authorities. It's actually one of the only three parables, right? That's in all of the,
1: um, yeah, that all, all three of the synoptic all three of the
0: synoptic gospels. Yeah. which is interesting because a lot of the treasured parables aren't. You know, yeah. a lot of the things that people get most find most memorable or most sentimental about, or they, or they become sort of part of their own religious imagination, are not mm-hmm. in all of them. But somehow, all the gospel synoptic gospels thought. This one was a non-negotiable.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think the the other dynamic too is the so there's a uh, now deceased uh, Episcopal Anglican um, uh, priest and theologian, and also a New York Times food critic because uh, he's awesome, uh, named Robert Farrar Capone. There you go. I got that the book in my hands. <laughs> my jam, and he, you know, so his uh, his construal of the of the parables. Uh, basically, arranges them in in three sets. There's the parables of the kingdom that mostly fall around the the outset of Jesus' ministry, which illumine what God is doing in the world through this wandering itinerant rabbi. And then there's the. And parables or he of,
0: still looks kind of like a traditional messiah yeah. figure. And that there, you he know, confounds you him totally a little bit, yet. but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Is this a nor? Is this a messiah like? Like we all think is is going to be a messiah, or this will be will will this person be something else? Um, Then there's the the parables of grace, which uh, which are mostly actually in the book of Luke, in the long middle of Luke, in the travel narrative section, and those those mostly describe Jesus' relations with uh, with all of the wrong people and his explaining to religious authorities why it is that he acts the way he does around. You know, hookers and tax collectors and such. Yeah, yeah and uh, Bond thinks and this is where
0: this is where death and resurrection start yeah. to become a little more prominent in the parables. Yeah. Like they don't. That's not a theme in the parables of the
1: kingdom, really. But yeah.
0: as he starts to sort of. As it's, the messianic secret kind of starts to unravel, that, that this is going to end mm-hmm. a, a, with a really bad Friday afternoon in Jerusalem. Yeah, the, the, the parables seem to allude to that a little more in the in the yeah. Well, and
1: then the yeah the third the third cluster of parables uh, for Capone is the parables of judgment, and those are the ones that predominantly occur in the during Holy Week and the yeah. run up to Good Friday, and that's where that's where this parable in Matthew twenty one is. It's one of the it's one of the parables of judgment. And and is said with the and is recorded by Matthew and preserved and and in all the synoptics with the idea that uh, that this is a you know this is a note of foreshadowing for what's going to happen later on in the week.
0: Well, when you first read Capon, were you like, why didn't anybody else t- teach me this?
1: Yeah, I was like, who <laughs> this? These are things that it seems like I someone should have taught me at some point in time before i mean and and the guy is just a, a marvelous writer but but his yeah his work around the parables in in part as he as he went through that i was like i shouldn't know this um yeah and i yeah. find
0: it, he's a guy too i think there's some people that are really good at the big picture overall like theology of the whole bible and they're not quite as attentive to detail and then there's some people mm-hmm. that are really good with like exegetical details but they're not very imaginative and colorful he's kind of got both i mean he he yeah. he's big picture and yet He's yeah. really good with textual detail.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's a yeah, he's good with textual detail. He's a he's a vivid and colorful writer, and most people who are writing biblical scholarship are not all those things at the same time. So, so if you're listening out there, get yourself Robert Farrar Capone's work on the parables. You will help yourself immensely. So uh, this, uh, the parable in Matthew of the, of the wicked tenants, I think this is one of those parables that works on a couple of levels when you, when you turn it around and unfold it and, and play with it. I think first it's a, it's a story about humanity. Uh, there's, uh, there's Elements in this, uh, in the beginning of the parable that allude to creation that, uh, that talk about, you know, that, that talk about the, you know, the vineyard owner, um, creating order out of chaos and a, and a, you know, a a little world, you know, to live in, um, and then leaving it to tenants that, uh, that don't take care of it. So I think on one level, this is the, this is the human story, uh, in, you know, uh, in micro form, I think on a, on a second level down, this is a story about, this is Israel's story. This is Jesus telling of, of Israel's story, of the story of God's people, um, failing to listen to the, to the word of the vineyard owner, uh, and not bearing the fruit of, of life with God in the world and of the vineyard owner's son being sent one last time. And uh, he he's telling them this story to explain what they're about to do to him later on in the later on in the week, um, you know. And then I I also think there's a there's a level beneath that as well too, where uh, where this is a story about a human life too. I think there's this parable can also be read as. Uh, as the story of what goes on inside a, inside a human heart that is, uh, uh, that is in rebellion against God. That there's this, there's this, uh, deep instinct to want to be the owner of your own life instead of a tenant of it responsible to, responsible to Almighty God. And so, so I think, I think this is one of those parables that, that works on multiple levels all at the same time.
0: Yeah, Karl Barth says that the gospel reading, the gospel stories you could just read as, especially the synoptics, he says the judge judged in our place, and that the, the human mm-hmm. story starts going awry when our first parents decide, I'm going to judge what's good and evil. I'm going to judge which, and, yeah. and then the one person on the hu- plane of human history comes who actually makes, acts cavalier about making judgments and makes the right judgments, right? Like he, you know, he actually yeah. is the one who really can judge.
1: Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, he's, he's. He's not just a. Um, he's not one of the tenants. He's actually the owner, and yet he's mm-hmm. judged in our place. So you have these like false judges who yeah. foreshadowing. They're gonna. F- they're gonna stand in judgment of the true judge.
1: You mm-hmm. know the other thing I think uh, that I, that I find Bart really helpful with in especially in some of this material, particularly in the in matthew and in john you know there are these moments when we we read this story now on this side of the holocaust and there's this uh there's this dynamic of the way that the way that it talks about the jews and uh and i think um you know bart and and i i can't remember the you're you're uh more well read on bart than i am so i can't remember the reference off the top of my head but um you know there's a place where he where he deals with this and he says you know that um that is saying that like the jews rejected jesus the jews had jesus crucified and such um it's it's a statement that is factually true but not spiritually illuminating right right uh like it's like he he makes the analogy of like it's like saying that socrates was killed by the by the greeks um the, bart makes the case that the real force of what's being depicted in these kinds of moments is that jesus is jesus is ultimately rejected and killed by by religious people yes um, absolutely and I think yeah. that that brings the point much closer to home for you know for somebody who is a good bible believing christian who still in their heart of hearts um acts like the owner of their own life instead yeah. of a tenant of it you know that 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 turns the parable around and aims it at a person in a way that just uh just saying well it wasn't a terrible that that the Jews did that, um, doesn't. So, so I find him helpful in that way too, particularly in these kinds of, in these kinds of moments in the gospels.
0: Let's just close with a little word from brother Capon, a blessed memory. There we Um, go. He stands in judgment against everyone who will not accept his acceptance of the world by faith alone, but he brings down his gavel only, on the folly that will not see that he judges nothing else, not goodness, not badness, not anything. And that is such a strange kind of againstness, such a blessed resistance of the world's insistence on judgment by works that you think it would make us all laugh out loud. But the self-justifying world can see it in him only as a threat. Hmm. I think that's true. I mean, until we give up on our own self-justification projects, the we try we usually try to turn the, the message of Jesus into some sort of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't do better. You can't do better than Father Capone.
0: Jared, thanks. This is this is great. Thanks for doing this. And I'll have you back.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating. Write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Jared for coming on the podcast and thanks to you again for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.